all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. You're listening to a podcast of Relatively Speaking on MPB Think Radio. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning and thanks for listening. This is Relatively Speaking, the show all about you and your family. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So I have a question for you. Why do you think some people can seem to eat whatever they want and never gain weight, while others are continuously dieting and struggling to lose just a few pounds, exercising even? Are some of us just genetically doomed to be overweight? Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Krista Lim from UMMC's Pediatric Wellness and Weight Clinic to help us better understand this very complex topic of obesity, because it is. It's not as simple as you may think. Why it happens, what the ramifications once a person becomes obese is something that we'll also discuss as we move through this next hour. So thanks for being with us. Before, I want to kind of set the stage before we bring Dr. Lim in. So according to the last behavioral risk factor surveillance system, um, adult obesity rates exceeded 35% in 12 states. Um, Got better in some, got worse in others, but basically remains stable. Mississippi has the highest rate with almost 41%. I think we all knew that. But um, if you look at our surrounding states, Louisiana, Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, um, Oklahoma, Kansas, those are all very close behind us. Now, Colorado and D.C. have the lowest rates, which are almost... 20 points below Mississippi's obesity rate, maybe 9 or 10 points below. So, you know, my question to you is, what do you think this is, nurture nature? Do you think you were preset as a young child to be overweight? Have you continually struggled? What about your kids? Or what about your grandchildren? Um, Are they different? Do you feel like they got set differently than you do or did? And if so, why? So we all know those people who can eat anything they want and still maintain what seems like a perfect weight. There are even those who are real thin while eating while eating high-calorie foods. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there are those people who eat very little or say they eat very little and still gain weight. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's real? Are there causes of obesity other than just eating too much? You know, a lot of times you hear people talk about, well, all you have to do to lose a few pounds is eat less. Stop talking about it. Or exercise more. Stop talking about it. But is it really that simple? 
So what are some of the other factors out there that maybe we struggle with that cause this to be a bigger issue than just calories in and calories out? Um, so, you know, if you look at the, the calorie equation, um, some people tend to use up calories more quickly than others. And we can talk about that as we move along. But also, some people seem to have some genetic influences um, that causes it to be easier, say, to store fat. And we can talk more about that as we're moving along, too. So how much, though, does your weight depend on your genes? We know that your genetic makeup are probably partly a contributor. And, and back in the, the days when we were hunters and gatherers, there were times of need where we really needed to be able to store more fat. And so some of us inherited that gene that makes it easier to store more fat. But is, is that all all there is. So one of both of your parents or several other blood relatives may be significantly overweight. Does that doom you to be significantly overweight? Um, so I wanted to lay that out there because what I'd like to do now is um, bring in our guest and expert, Dr. Crystal Lim, who is associate professor and a psychologist who specializes in the area of eating disorders and weight issues and um, is at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, has done a lot of work. And um, as we were preparing for this show, she, um, she sent me a, a website that had an incredible graph on it, a pictorial of the potential contributors of obesity, and some inside the person contributors, and then some outside person contributors. So, Dr. Lim, I told you I was very, very excited about having you join us uh, to talk through this topic and answer any questions that people had as we're moving along. So, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for asking me to be here today, and um, I think this is definitely a, such an important topic, um, and uh, like you've talked about already, is a very complex public health problem um, that is, you know, impacted by a variety of factors. So I think it's important for people to know it's not just your genetics, it's not just the environment, but we're also really seeing that all, both of those things interact together. Um, to influence um, increased weight and trouble losing weight. Um, so it's definitely, there, there are lots of things that we can um, talk about and discuss in more detail today to help um, you know, answer questions or provide information um, that other people might find helpful. And there is help out there too, right? If, if a person is struggling and really has a desire to lose weight, there, there is help. Yes, yes. And um, uh, at UMMC, we have a weight management um, uh, clinics. We have them for uh, children and adolescents in our pediatric 
weight management program, and then we also have um, surgical and non-surgical um, weight management uh, treatments for adults there as well. Um, so that there are resources available um, at at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, but also in other other places um, throughout the the area and throughout the state. So that's something as we move along. I know um, we'll probably have some questions, and I want to welcome um, anyone who is listening who has a question. We have an expert here, and and I know that you don't do any of the surgeries, obviously, but. Um, what I would like for you to to do if someone calls is to to let them know when might a surgical option be appropriate for um, an an individual. So, listeners, please call one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. But I would encourage you to go ahead and give a call if you have some thoughts, questions. How did obesity happen to you? Or how did you conquer it? What did you do? Or perhaps if you have some concerns about someone you love, a family member. Um, what possibly um, could you do to help them? So... Dr. Lim, um, before the show, Michelle McAdoo and I, my producer, um, were talking about some of the, the many factors. You know, certainly poverty plays a part. Food insecurity plays a part. Yeah. Um, our food deserts that we talk about, that, you know, it's easier to go to, for, for many who live in our rural areas, it, it, it's so much easier to... Um, to, to go buy a bag of chips or go buy ba- fast food than it is to be able to um, buy nutritious food. Would you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. So we do know food insecurity, kind of limited financial resources, put people at risk for increased weight. Um, and um, in the literature, um, they're talking about, and I think people that live in rural communities in Mississippi and other areas might be able to re- relate to this a little bit. Um, they're even going beyond the food deserts to describe them as food swamps. So basically what that, um, what they describe that as, as an area, it could be a rural area, it could be an um, urban area that has limited access to healthy food and has more access to the unhealthy foods like fast food that you mentioned. So um, I think we're, we're making some progress in terms of really conceptualizing and not just that it's a food desert, but that the food that's available is not, um, not healthy options for um, children and families and for adults. Um, and so really how do we help those areas that there's maybe no grocery stores that sell fresh fruits and vegetables, or um, there's, you know, the convenience store doesn't have those, um, you know, apples or bananas or other things available. Um, And and how do we really help those communities get more access to healthy foods um, to kind of balance out um, the food that's available? Um, And how do we make it affordable for 
for families and, and other people as well that might be struggling with food insecurity or having li- limited financial resources. Um, so that's where um, some of the research is, is focusing on now. And one of the recent articles I read um, was talking about food swamps in Mississippi mm-hmm. and a lot of the areas where those are more prevalent, shouldn't it be a surprise to many of your listeners, are in rural communities and also even in, in some urban areas of the state, too, where sure. grocery stores have left. Um, and then, you, you know, the fast food restaurants are are perforating throughout the area. So um, I think that's that's definitely an important um, thing for people to be aware of is also what's around you, what's available can also be a contributing factor. Right. Uh, and there may be some ways that we can we can work on that with community gardens and learning yeah. how to take care of some of that ourselves. I know that's not the only answer and that simplifies it, but I'd love to hear individuals' ideas about that. Um, we are going to go to our first break. We have Sue and Kat waiting on the line. Sue and Kat, wait for us. We will be right back. We are talking about obesity, the factors, the many complex factors of what's going on. Um, not just food deserts, but also maybe genetic factors, other environmental issues, and other Um, perhaps issues that we need to learn to deal with. Give us a call. Join in the conversation, 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. You can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress here with Dr. Krista Lynn, and we will be right back. The entire foundation of your child's brain is being built in the first five years of life. This construction is strengthened through the child's interactions with others. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. The good news is you have what it takes to be a brain builder. Learn more at MississippiThrive.com. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress here with Dr. Crystal Lim. Today we are talking about obesity. September is National Childhood Obesity Awareness Month. And as we move through the show, I want us to to talk about several things in general. Let me throw out a few questions to you, listeners. Do you do you think that parents set the stage for eating disorders sometimes? Do you think that their obsession about not letting their child eat too much or too little, perhaps, is um, causing that? Do you think sometimes even grandparents play a role in thinking that uh, a chubby child is a cute child and they need to be chubby? Um, 
Give us a call. Contribute to the conversation at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. We're going to go on to the phones as promised. Sue in Beaumont is our first caller. Hi, Sue. Hi. How are you today? <clears throat> Great. Thanks for calling. I'd like to make some comments about weight. I've heard people say. Uh, I've worked with people and been around people who say, I've tried every diet on earth and I can't lose weight. <laughs> That's not true. Because if you take a look at any of the film footage from when the Russians and the Americans liberated the Nazi prison camps, the death camps, there was not a fat person there. Everybody who was a prisoner of, a prisoner in one of those Nazi concentration camps were nothing but walking skeletons. And they were repatriated, a few were repatriated and brought back into normal life. And I'm sure they gained back their normal weight stat. I believe everybody has a weight thermostat. They, it, you, you have a weight that you're supposed to be at, and that's what it's set at. Maybe that comes from when human beings, uh, like you say, there were some human beings who adapted to really storing away every calorie that they came across at, to, as a survival method. And so they're always going to have trouble keeping weight down because that's not how their body thermostat works to keep the weight on, you know what I mean? But there were no fat people in concentration camps, so when people say they can't lose weight, no, that's not true because if you stop putting food in your mouth, you're going to lose weight, absolutely guaranteed. <laughs> you, good point, Sue, a sad point, and you're absolutely right. Everybody was emaciated, and uh, apparently they got a little bit of food, but not much. So, um, Dr. Lim, do you want to make a comment on um, Sue's points? Yeah, I think Sue's point about the kind of biological set point of weight is is one um, that's important. And we, we do see that sometimes that's why it's so hard once people lose weight initially when they're going through a lifestyle program that they often will gain the weight back um, because there are by and, and Dr. Boutrous, you know more about the probably the biological and the metabolic aspects, but there are um, things going on in our bodies biologically that, um, and and I'm not referring to necessarily people that are emaciated, um, but for people that are trying to lose weight, um, when we diet and we lose weight initially, there the, our body is kind of counteracting that and does try to get us back to kind of our initial uh, the initial weight that we started with. So. Um, that is important and, and something that's why once you make changes to your lifestyle behaviors like healthy eating and physical activity, it's really important to sustain it and maintain it over time um, because there's going to be those initial things that try to get you back to where you started with. So mm-hmm. it is important and something to be um, aware of and um, and why kind of keeping up with changes can be so important. Um, But I guess the other point I want to make is that um, we also know that we are more at risk if we go through like the yo-yo dieting practices where we're like on a diet and then we go back to eating the way we did before and then we go back on a diet. Um, We know that that um, also is associated with increased weight gain over time. And so that's why when in our clinic, when I work with children and adolescents, we talk about we're making these changes. It's more a lifestyle. It's a long-term change. This is not a short-term change because we know that that actually leads to more weight gain over mm-hmm. time. Right. Um, right. So and so, yeah, 
Absolutely. I think, um, and you mentioned something that I want to emphasize, the, the, that set point. That set point can change, actually, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and the reason, the way you make it change is to work on more metabolic rate. I think a lot of times um, what ha- Dr. Lynn mentioned something, your body will move if you don't eat. If you start, if you go from eating 3,000 calories a day, to 500 calories a day for a couple of weeks, you know what your body does? It goes, oh, no, I'm starving to death, so I'm going to lower the energy that my body uses so that I can save um, and survive on these calories. And so what happens is your body just sort of changes the rate it burns energy. So guess what happens? Then if you start eating the amount, that 3,000 calories a day, then you're going to probably gain weight more quickly than, than, um, than you lost it or than you even previously had gained the weight. So something to keep in mind. Before we go any further, I want to go to Kat, who's been patiently waiting in Mobile. Hi, Kat. Hi. Um, I was just calling to just make a comment or had a couple of thoughts about the topic. Um, I definitely agree with, like, the food deserts and finances, um, more so circumstantial reasons mm-hmm. why people may not make the best choices because they may not, they literally may not have the best uh, choices available to them. Um, and then I was also thinking about perspective um, because a lot of people know about the chart and I'm doing like the parentheses you know what I'm saying in uh-huh. quotations. Um, but when you think about the chart, I didn't realize that I was obese until I read the chart. And I was like, but I'm active and I, I work out, but I'm structurally just not made to be small. I, I think I was small when I was a child, but I'm, I'm not the picture that you would think of when you think about obesity. You think about uh, maybe the dad or family guy or something like that, but I don't fit that picture. And so perspective and education is important um, because I just, I, I didn't look like uh, a morbidly obese person. And so therefore I didn't think that I fit into that category. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just interesting to have education and information to kind of um, go off of. And then, just, I guess, having access to someone like the guest that's on the show today to help you understand if the chart is applicable to you, because some people just aren't, I think I'm supposed to be 165 according to the chart, mm-hmm. and I, I would be extremely unhealthy. Um, and so just having education and, and people keeping in mind that circumstances are, are a big deal. If you don't have a car and you can only get to the convenience store, and there's a three liter of soda for a dollar, and you have mm-hmm. a, a case of water for five dollars. Mm-hmm. What are people more likely going to get if they're financially insecure mm-hmm. and they have money to access? Mm-hmm. It's you know it's difficult to make those good choices. Yeah. 
Many good points. Doc, Dr. Lim, go ahead. I can tell you have some comments. <laughs> yeah, well, I, th- I, I think um, the chart cat, I think as she's referring to, is the body mass index right. or BMI chart. Um, and so that is what we generally use to identify whether people are considered overweight or obese. Um, now, I will say that is... Um, you know, there are also issues with that system. It's not it's not perfect. Um, so we might also look at things like um, other health problems that you might have, like hypertension or um, type 2 diabetes or prediabetes. So, you know, I think it's important for people to know we might not just look at that BMI chart, but we will look at other health indicators Um, BMI is kind of a quick way that we can estimate um, body fat and um, risk for chronic medical conditions related to obesity, but it's definitely not perfect. So like me, I'm short, so I'm kind of at a disadvantage, I like to say, (laughs) on that BMI chart. Um, Other people that are more muscular or are larger um, in terms of height, uh, or in my family, we used to call it like big boned. Um, right. and other families probably um, use that term too. Um, so it, it's not a perfect way, but it is kind of our um, in our clinics and kind of in other settings, it is how we just can estimate if people are at risk for um, obesity related medical complications. So that's why it's important to talk with your, you know, your physicians and, and, um, uh, doctors that you see about your own health um, and weight um, status, I, I think is the main point I wanted to say. I thought Kat's other points about education and access are also so important. Um, mm-hmm. So there are, um, you know, oftentimes limitations in terms of health insurance. So you might not be able to go see your primary care provider like you should, and or you might not have a provider that knows a lot about obesity or how to help you manage obesity. And that's where kind of knowing what resources are available in the community and in other areas can be really helpful if that's um, something for yourself or for health reasons you need to work on in terms of managing weight. I would like for you to just go one step further with the the BMI. I have a son-in-law who is very muscular, very fit, exercises a lot. No one would ever look at him and think that he was overweight. But on the BMI um, chart, he is overweight. And so is there, is having a lot of muscle mass, does that, is that a negative for you from a health standpoint? It seems Yes. So, and it's actually very common for even like professional athletes that are really muscular to be considered overweight or obese because we know that muscle weighs more than fat. And so the the BMI charts are really designed to kind of estimate body fat percentage. Um, And when muscle weighs more than muscle weighs more, so it's going to make your weight higher. Um, And so that's partly why people that are really muscular might also come out higher on the body mass index scale. And so again, that's why thinking about other things that might contribute to 
weight or body proportions um, is, is really important when we're thinking about like overall health um, status. And, and again, I like to say we're not just looking at one number, one right. the number on the scale. We're really looking at kind of the whole person um, in terms of their body type and, um, and those sort of factors to identify like the risk factors related to obesity. Right. Does that does that help clarify? Yes, absolutely. That's I wanted us to make sure we didn't tell people to stop working out and taking care of themselves. <laughs> okay, we're going to go to our next break, and Robert is waiting on the lines. Robert, wait for us. We'll be right back, but we have other open lines. Please join the conversation. We'd love to hear your questions about what you can do or perhaps just some general opinions about obesity, how you got overweight or how you maintain your weight. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can send that email to family at mpbonline.org. This is Relatively Speaking, and we'll be right back. Dr. Susan Buttress. Children grow and change so fast, it's important to help them build the strong foundations they need to help develop lifelong skills and succeed in school. Whether it's singing songs in the car or counting steps while walking to the mailbox, there are many ways to help young children learn new skills and reach new developmental milestones. Even before they can talk, babies can make connections and respond to adults' words, sounds, and facial expressions by clapping, waving, or smiling back at them. Not only is it fun, but it's important to talk, read, and sing with children. More at MississippiThrive.com. MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back and thanks for listening. This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. I'm here with Dr. Crystal Lim, who is an expert in weight management and um, at, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we're, we're talking in general about Um, obesity issues, environmental causes, those internal causes, those external causes. And, you know, I want us to get more into environmental influences that that play a part very early in our lives and sometimes even before we're born. There has been some research that has shown that in utero exposures, when the baby's cooking, um, in the uterus, there are some fetal programming things that can happen. Babies of mothers who smoke during pregnancy, believe it or not, though maybe are small at birth, are more likely to be overweight later. Um, the same thing goes for children who are born to mothers with diabetes. Um, and so researchers are looking at these conditions and say that maybe it does alter the baby's metabolism 
and the way they grow later in life. So I want us to talk about that as we're moving along. And if you have any questions or thoughts about that, please give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's 877-672-7464. But let's go back to those lines. We have Robert in Hattiesburg. Robert, thanks for being patient. Thank you. No problem. Uh, I just have a couple of comments and a question. I'm going to hang up and listen to the response. I was just curious if you could maybe speak a little about the body's process for accessing energy. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people are assuming that because you're exercising, you're burning fat. But everybody has, you know, the body has a process of this, the order in which it accesses energy mm. or calories for energy, you know, and starting with carbohydrates and immediate access. And it takes a little a little while before your body kicks into the gear where it's actually converting fat into usable energy. So I feel like there's a lot of struggles with people thinking, like, I don't understand. I'm exercising. I'm eating. I'm, I'm gaining more weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you're thinking that, like, well, I went and exercised for 30 minutes. I must have burned fat, you know, when a lot of times it could be an hour or more mm-hmm. before the body kicks into gear to actually start burning fat. So... Uh, that said, if you wouldn't mind discussing that just a little bit whenever you get a chance, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Actually, um, Robert, I'll, I'll make a couple of comments, and then I'll turn it over to Dr. Lim. Did you have any other question other than that? Because you made a couple of really good points. Okay. Yeah. You you made some, some really good points. Um, you don't get into fat burning until a bit down the road. Um, like Robert said, uh, the first thing that that happens is you you get into sort of the easy to thing access, the easy thing to access, and that is glucose, um, blood sugar. And so if you're if you're running along with a high blood sugar and you start burning calories, it it lowers your blood sugar a bit. Um, and, and so the, the other thing before, now before you, um, burn your muscle mass, you definitely are going to burn fat though. And so, um, to, to keep in mind, um, there are plenty of people who, who get obsessed with exercise and obsessed with weight loss and, and, you know, not only do they drive their blood sugar down and get rid of some of that excess weight, but then they start um, chipping away at muscle mass. So, you know, there's there's a happy medium there um, that we we have to take a look at. And Dr. Lim, this might be a, a good opportunity for us to go back to that question that um, our producer had a bit earlier about you know, parents, and and if parents um, do um, put a lot of emphasis on, on the way an individual looks, that there's this perfect weight um, that they should be, do you, what do you see? Do you, do you see that creates maybe an internal struggle in children? Do you, do you find that, is there often a pattern that you see, or or is it so variable in, in why some children um, struggle with their weight in adolescence and then later adults? 
Yeah, I think what, um, at least in terms of developing eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia, what we know is that kind of the need for perfectionism, whether that's kind of the child's own personality characteristics or whether that's high expectations in the family. Um, so it can be a variety of factors, um, but that can really drive the need to feel like I need to lose weight or I need to be this size or I need to be this weight. Um, and so what we really, in our clinic and um, in kind of this area of work, what we really encourage families to, parents especially, to focus on is not necessarily appearance or uh, weight, um, but really to encourage you know, being healthy, um, and that means um, eating, you know, the, a balanced amount of calories, eating from the different food groups, um, so um, kind of making sure we're eating enough, but we're not eating too much, so again, that delicate balance we've kind of been talking about, I guess, throughout our, um, throughout today so far, and, and healthy amounts of physical activity, so knowing that, um you know, the recommendations, again, I work mostly with kids, so I know more about what the recommendations are for them. It's an hour a day of physical activity is, is what's recommended. For adults, um, the recommendations are a little bit different, but um, a variety of physical activity and types of physical activity is really important. Um, so, again, it's really just being able to balance, being able to evaluate um, you know, when we're getting a little too far, but, but I think for parents really advocating, you know, for physical activity, we want you to find something you enjoy doing, you're having fun, um, it's helping you continue to be healthy, um, and then also for the eating that, you know, the food you put in your body is, uh, is a way that we're helping you be healthy and maintain kind of your you know, that your, your body is able to do all the things you want to do. Um, and we know for kids, um, eating a variety of um, foods with different vitamins and minerals helps with brain functioning and brain development. So that's related to how we're doing in school. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So really the whole idea of that our body is, is connected um, and all these things are important for helping us be healthy, I think is really the the most important um, for families to focus on. Again, not the number on the scale, not the size right. of the clothes that you are, but really how are you feeling about your body? Um, how are you feeling physically in terms of your, your health? Um, that those are all the really important things for, for us to be focusing on. Um, we haven't touched on it either, but sleep is so important. We know that, that right. now there's more research suggesting that that's related to um, how we store and burn um, energy from the foods we eat and also how we burn energy from physical activity. Um, so all of these things are, are so important when we talk about kind of being a healthy, healthy overall individual. Um, and so making sure that that's also something families are talking to, to kids and teenagers about is also important. Right. Well, Dr. Lim, this is Michelle. Thank you for being on the show today. My question is for parents, um, when should they consult a doctor? When do they know it's a problem? Because as we spoke about in the beginning of the show, uh, the little chubby baby with the little rose, it's really cute. And no one, you know, they think it's really cute for a baby to be plump. And it does look nice. But at what point... Um, 
should a parent say, well, this is becoming an, an issue or should they make it an, an issue? And mm-hmm. my second point, if you can make that after you talk about that, is um, if you're noticing a problem with your um, child, it's very important for parents to set the example. So I know we as parents, we do a lot, but you say exercising for children. We need to set the tone and exercise as a family, exercise together, eat healthy as adults, and your child will follow suit. Yes. Yes. So you make a great point. First, I'll uh, touch on the parents being the model. So that's something we definitely talk about in our clinic, the work I do with kids and families is, you know, it's really important for parents to also model or show that they're eating healthy, um, to engage in physical activity with their child. We know that um, kids that have parents that are more active, when they're older, they engage in more physical activity. We know if kids have parents that are eating, you know, vegetables and eating healthier overall, they have kids that are eating healthier too. So there is some component of seeing other people do these things helps kids be able to do them. Um, so we, we do know that that is, is really important um, to, to keep in mind and really making changes as a family and not just as the child or adolescent, for example. Um, in terms of when to know whether um, something's, you know, the, it, the, either the weight gain or weight loss, whatever the situation may be, is a problem, I would say um, – you know, when uh, your child has um, uh, checkups with their primary care uh, pediatrician or medical provider, that that's a really good time to look at those charts that we were talking about earlier, the body mass index charts, to see where they are on the on the growth chart. So in kids, we look at um, the charts are different for um, different sexes. So there's one for girls and one for boys. Um, so it's really helpful to see where is your child kind of tracking along on that chart. So we know some kids are, you know, always above the average um, from from birth, really. Um, and, th- and so we might expect that they might stay on that trajectory. Um, it's really when we are off a trajectory, either we're above where we had been before or below, um, where we really, you know, where I think it's important to talk with the physicians and other healthcare providers about what to do about that or what are what are the concerns, um, and to to go from there in terms of decision making, where to go for more help. Um, so, and and what the body mass index charts do for kids is really tell us they're gaining more weight than we'd expect based on their age and their height. So, you know, it's it's really important to look at where weight and height are for kids in terms right. of their expected growth, and that can help us see if their body mass index is kind of falling off the curve they were on before, um, and, and um, you know what the concern might be, and and then. Um, get help. Oftentimes, um, we recommend in primary care settings that we try to make changes to, when we're talking about obesity-related or weight management for kids, try to make changes for three to six months and then refer to a specialty clinic like the one that I work in if we're not seeing improvements. Um, 
in in that setting. So everybody doesn't need a specialist. Sometimes they just need someone to say, okay, this is this is maybe where we need to start watching what's going on. Um, how are you eating? How are you exercising? And I wanted to emphasize um, the BMI is a calculation that looks at both weight and height, like Dr. Lim just said. So you might have a child who's at the 98th percentile for weight, but their height is at the 90th percentile, and they're likely just fine. They're where they should be. So I think that's what we have to remember. You can't just go by the weight. Right. Okay, we're going to go to our final break. We still have time for some callers. Give a call real quick. Jump in the conversation at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's 877-672-7464. We are, no, that's 877-672-7464. There. Um, we are talking about obesity and um, when to intervene, what to do, maybe what changes we might need to make. We will be right back. MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back, and thanks for listening. This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress here with Dr. Crystal Lynn. We're talking about obesity. The internal, the external causes, um, when do you get worried, when do you get concerned? And I think in the last few minutes, what I'd like to talk about are a couple of things. Um, Back to the food factor just a little bit. According to the Center for Disease Control, Americans are eating more calories on average than they did in the 1970s. And I, you know, I'm one of the older individuals now. I'm in the senior portion of the population. And I do remember that. I do believe that portions have changed. Um, between, um, in, in the early 70s, it seemed that on average, people were eating um, about as we moved into um, the the next 30 years, people on average started eating about, men, about 168 calories more than they did previously. Listen to this. Women, about 335 calories a day more than previously. So interesting. You know, we talk about the increasing rate of obesity. Some of it is calorically related. Um 
We do have a caller. We have Linda from from Jackson. Hi, Linda. Thanks for thanks for calling. I'm sorry. Um, you there? Yes, ma'am. Hey. Hey, Linda. Tell us what your comments or question is. Oh, I just am a registered dietitian who's worked in weight management for several years, and just wanted to say thank you for bringing up ideas about individual counseling as well, and and how important that is to to meet the people and the families where they're at. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that, um, Linda. Why don't you tell us how people could, would do you mind telling us how people could access you since you do counseling in this area? I know there are people oh, out there who'd be interested. Well, now I'm doing a lot of community work. I'm not so much with the individual nutrition counseling, but have um, had a history of working with it and just have appreciated your show well, today. Well, thank you so much, because I think, well, you know, hearing about community work is also very, I think, something that we need to stay aware of, that that perhaps, and there there are times when it's really important to to talk to individuals as a group and and let sort of the village participate in in helping others around them, perhaps, in the healthy eating. And all. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And uh, the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics does have a find a dietitian option. If you go to eatright.org, you can narrow it down to um, Mississippi dietitians and then ones that are working specifically in areas. And so that's eatright.org. Eatright.org. Have you noticed an increase of obesity with children and uh, since social media has emerged like it has with Facebook and Instagram? Well, I'll comment first. If if you look at the number of advertisements out there targeted at young children on social media and elsewhere, the there we know that they are targeting children um to eat those high caloric, low nutritional foods. Um, and so we know that's happening. The other issue is I think kids are so much more sedentary than they used to be. We used to spend hours and hours running outside and riding our bikes until it was dark, and now kids don't do that like they used to. Right, Dr. Lim? Yes, that is certainly true in terms of when kids are sedentary and they're they're doing things where they might be exposed to advertisements. So I think of like YouTube or other social media um, platforms, they might be on, they're exposed to advertising for largely unhealthy foods. Um, you know, I think about um, what was mentioned earlier in terms of um, we're eating more calories than we were 30 years ago. Well, we're also doing jobs that are less active. So mm-hmm. um, adults and kids just are less active in their everyday lives. Um, and we know that those those two things together can help you know tip the scale to to make obesity more problematic. So th- there's definitely been a lot of work working with the food and beverage industries to try to limit um, what's directed towards kids related to unhealthy food choices. Um, but it's such a complicated. Um, uh, again, you know, it, it's a big issue and, and something that there are people working and advocating right. um, for changes to that. But 
Yeah. Right. Well, Dr. <laughs> Lim, I, I think we could talk about this for another oh, hour, yeah. but yeah. thank you. Our time is up, and I just want to thank you so much for all the good work that you do. And loved having you back. We'll call you again. Don't worry thank, about that. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, listeners, if you'd like to hear this show again or any past episodes, you can listen to the podcast on your favorite podcast app by searching Southern Remedy, Relatively Speaking. This show is a production of MPB Think Radio and engineered by Michelle McAdoo. Our call screener was the famous Jay White. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress. I hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 11 for Relatively Speaking. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next right here on MPB Think Radio.